So if you are uh, new or joining us for the very first time, we have been going through the book of Revelation this semester. And uh, as we have gone through that book, we have made it through chapter 4, and tonight we get to look at Revelation chapter 5. And um, really, uh, last week's message and this week's message are kind of part 1 and part 2 together. You can't really understand the fullness of tonight's message if you don't understand the fullness of last week's message. And we really hit on this idea that God is so much bigger than we could ever possibly imagine, that he's transcendent, and that in our sin, we actually are not worthy to approach him. And we talked about what that looks like, that God is so much greater than us. And so tonight, we get to talk about the second part of that reality in Revelation chapter 5. But before we read the passage and kind of dive in, here's the question I want you to talk about with the folks at your tables. Make sure you know all their names, and then talk about this question. What is your favorite passage of Scripture? What is your favorite passage of Scripture? Talk your tables, we'll get a few answers, and then we'll dive into Revelation chapter 5. If you've been at Twins very long, you know my absolute favorite passage is Romans 8, and I've read it I don't know how many times. But in my top three is actually one of, one of the passages we'll be reading tonight. And uh, one of the reasons Revelation chapter 5, and specifically some of the verses towards the middle are my favorite is because almost like no other verse in the Bible, as I think you will see, this chapter pulls together the whole biblical storyline in just a mind-blowing way. And it makes Jesus the absolute king of the story. And uh, for me, and I hope you will see this as well, what you will find from this passage is that in one of the ways, it's almost like this exegetical or hermeneutical key. It's like, like you can't quite understand Scripture unless you understand this verse or this passage. And it really does hold the keys to understanding God's storyline in Scripture and why the coming of Jesus was so significant. And so uh, tonight we're just going to explore the incredible nature of Revelation chapter 5, and I hope that you will walk away with a bigger view of Jesus uh, than you had when you came in. And so we're going to do this. We're going to start by reading the passage. So just like we have the, the last several weeks, let's stand together out of reverence for God's word. And uh, I will read Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Remember, this is the one on the throne who is high and mighty and lifted up, surrounded by the thunderstorms, uh, separated by the great sea from all of his people. He's got these great beings circling around him. And this is the one that John is talking about. I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look in it. And I wept, and I wept, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look in it. But then... One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went, and he took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated 
on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. And each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also the living creatures and of the elders. And their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. May God bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. I think one of the most interesting things that we could notice about this passage that may seem like an inconsequential detail to us is the fact that in the very first verses, it talks about that scroll in the hand of the one on the throne, that scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. Now, if you're like me, you've got a printer at home, it can, you can probably print double-sided. Having writing on both sides of something is not that cool. I just made, I mean, my, my notes are double-sided printed. It took me a split second to click a button and make it happen. And yet, back in the day, in biblical times, paper was hard to come by. It's not something you could just buy in reams at Office Depot. But it was something that was actually cut from, from papyrus plants and cut in these thin strips. And what would happen is it was kind of double-layered. And so to produce them, you would have a horizontal layer where you have these strips going horizontal, and then there'd be kind of this glue or resin put between them, and then you'd have these vertical strips in the back end, kind of a grid uh, look, and that would hold the papyrus together. And because it was so labor-intensive and because you've got the, you know, the, these different strips of papyrus going different directions, oftentimes people would only write on one side of the scroll because you would write on the horizontal ones. Because if you've ever written on a table where there's stuff underneath your piece of paper and you're trying to write over it, it you know, your, your pen and ink, and it goes crazy, it's easier just to write with those horizontal strips. And so typically, a roll of papyrus, a scroll, would just have writing on one side. And what, part of what that would do is it would also give some privacy so that someone couldn't peek in at the message. And so, there are really only two reasons why you would ever have writing on both sides of the scroll. One is because you were extremely poor, and all you could do was afford that one piece of papyrus, the one piece of paper, and so, I mean, you had to write on it because that's all you had. You had to write on both sides. But there would be another reason why you would see writing on both sides of the piece of papyrus, and it was this. If your message was so important 
that it could not be separated. Because imagine if you've got multiple pieces of paper and you have a courier who goes sent out, you know, you can't email this. You don't want those pieces of paper separated because not only would it, would it end a legally binding contract, but it, it would keep a decree from coming to pass because purposes are separated. The people signing on don't actually know the whole story or the whole decree, the whole writing. And so another reason you would write on both sides is because the message is so important. It cannot be separated or divided that the people receiving it have to have the whole thing in their hands. And that's why you would write on both sides. And then add into this the idea of the seven seals. Well, again, for us, we have those, those envelopes where you can just kind of lick the envelope and it sticks and it's secure and it's great. But back in the day, you would do these wax seals. And if you wanted the message to be particularly secure, you would put multiple seals on it. And also, if you were a kingly figure, someone of authority, you would put the number seven is kind of this royal number. You would put that number of seals on it, both for security but also to boast in your authority. So, for example, the last will and testament of the Roman Emperor Vespasian, who would have lived around the time of Revelation, was sealed with seven seals. So, this scroll, with writing on both sides, with seven seals, that's in the hand of God on the throne, is of infinite importance. Infinite importance. And what it represents is all of God's decrees and purposes. And basically, what John is trying to tell us in this passage is, if someone is not able to, and worthy to come in and break the seals of the scrolls and read out the, the, uh, the writing on the scrolls, then God's purposes will not come to pass. They will be left sealed. It would be as if someone passed away. Take Emperor Vespasian and his scroll was not able to be opened, his descendants would not receive their inheritance. Even if Vespasian said, this is what I want to happen, if the scroll is not opened and the legally binding document is not read and understood, then his will is not done. His decrees are not done. So that's what's on the line. And so you think about, imagine with your with kind of a sanctified holy imagination umbrella of grace this great mountain with lightning and thunder surrounding it you've got this one on the throne who you can almost not even see because of all these great beings surrounding him and the storm and this great sea separating you and all of this kind of chaos and transcendence and terror going on and all of a sudden you have this angel step out and begin to say who in all the universe, not just on the earth, not just under the earth, not just in the sea, not just in space, but in all of the universe, is worthy to open the scroll? Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw on the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I also saw an angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Imagine, I mean, just a, a booming voice that, that would just stop you in your tracks. If you guys know anything about church history, there was a preacher and theologian named George Whitfield who was incredibly prominent in the First Great Awakening. And he was, he was said to have such a booming and loud voice that 30,000 people could hear him in the open air in a field. Think about that. 
I mean, sometimes we struggle to hear one another in this room when we're just talking, sitting at the tables, and we're not that far from one another. But imagine people, 30,000 people, a long distance away, able to hear him, open air with wind and the trees rustling and all of this. Actually, there's a story of Benjamin Franklin, who was not a religious person himself, but he was interested in what Whitfield was saying, and so he's listening to Whitfield. And Franklin, like the Enlightenment figure he is, the rationalist he is, began to count and estimate how many people were there and how far away they were from Whitfield uh, before you couldn't hear him. And he estimated 30,000 people and many, many yards away, and you could still hear Whitfield. Imagine that kind of booming loud voice on steroids to where the entire universe could hear what this angel is saying. And what does he say? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? I mean, he's, he's, he's calling. He's saying, is anyone in the entire universe, all the beings that have ever existed, will ever exist, is anyone worthy to ascend up to this great throne with the transcendent God and the thunderstorms, the lightning and thunder in this great sea? Is anyone worthy to approach this God and take the scroll and open its seals? And what happens is Nothing. There's silence because no one is worthy. So John tells us no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look in it. And therefore, God's purposes would not come to pass. And so what is John's reaction? I wept and I wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look in it. So imagine your whole life, and in the scope of eternity past, you have all of these beings who have some inclination that there is a God, and He is going to bring His purposes to pass, and despite all of the suffering and hopelessness we might feel in the world, that He would make everything right. All of the suffering they've experienced, all of the martyrdom, all of the bloodshed, all of the pain, all of the abuse, that it would be made right, only to find out that God's purposes would not come to pass. That Satan actually got the victory. And hopelessness overtakes everyone. And in order for us to even get a sense of what that would feel like, because we can relate to a degree... Here's the question that I want you to think about at your tables. What is the situation in your life right now, or in the world, if if you don't want to share one personally or you don't have one personally you can think of, what is the situation in your life right now or the world right now where you feel hopeless and almost as if God has abandoned you or abandoned that situation? Take three, four minutes at your tables, share those answers, And I want you to hold on to what that feels like, even as you think of that hopelessness. And then we will continue on. I want you to hold on to that feeling of hopelessness and helplessness that that might have come to mind as you think about, you know, whatever situation you share, whether it was your own life or in the world around you. For some of you, it may be that there's a family member who is sick and you have cried out to God time and time and time again to heal and God seems totally silent. 
Or maybe for you, you had a parent that abused you and abandoned you, and you have prayed that God would do something in that situation, and yet God seems silent. Or maybe for you, you went through a breakup, and you just feel like there is no hope. You said, God, I need you to do something in my life right now, and it just feels hopeless. God doesn't seem to answer. Maybe you had a friend or mentor or pastor that fell into lie, that let you down, who fell into sin. And for you, it just feels like, how could I trust anyone? God, where are you? How, why would you allow any of this to happen? Or maybe you look at the wars that are going on in this world, the political corruption, and you just feel like, how could anything possibly change? God, where are you? Is anything going to change? I have prayed time and time and time again with tears in my eyes and nothing is changing. And God, I trust you that you can do something. I, I trust you can turn all things to good. You tell me that in your word, but I see no evidence, God, and I'm losing all hope. That's what these people would have felt like. And part of the reason they would have felt hopeless, part of the reason they would have felt confusion, part of the reason they were weeping is because these folks would have had the storyline of Scripture in mind. For some of you, if you're newer to Christianity, or maybe you've never read the Bible all the way through, that point may not make sense, but it actually is really important. Because over the storyline of Scripture, God makes promise after promise after promise after promise to His people that He will deliver them. Even back to the Garden of Eden, you think God created humanity in his very own image, Adam and Eve, as the, the first fruits of humanity. <clears throat> and what do they do? God gives them everything they need to flourish, to be in relationship with him. And they rebel. They sin. They say, God, we know a better way. We want to sit on your throne. They disobeyed him. And sin and the curse of sin infects all of reality, not just people, not just souls, but even creation itself, the book of Romans tells us, is groaning for the redemption of the sons of men. As you think about that story and humanity's fall into sin, hopelessness immediately shows up. Because how could man ever bridge this infinite gap between him and God? We could never do it on our own power. Adam and Eve's good works surely outweighed their bad before they sinned, and it was one single sin that separated Adam and Eve from God because God is holy and transcendent and infinite, and all the things we talked about last week. And so hopelessness arises. And yet in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, even in the very first book of the Bible, there's hope from God. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. He's speaking to Satan now. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he, Eve's offspring, humanity's offspring, will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's this glimmer of hope in the hopelessness of God saying, Satan is going to wage war. He is going to do a lot of damage on humanity. He will bruise humanity's heel, but there will be one who will crush his head. And from then, you see God's people tracing out this story of hope, that God will deliver his people. Even further on in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 15, you've got Abraham that God calls out. He's going to be the father of many nations, and God will use Abraham to bless the nations, his offspring to bless the nations. 
And God is making a covenant with Abraham. And what happens? Abraham goes through this process. In ancient times, you would split up these animals as part of this covenant process, and you'd put them out in a row, and both parties would walk between the animals. And it was this way of saying that in a covenant, I am going to hold up my end of the deal, and if I don't, I will be as good as dead, just like these animals we've cut up. It was a reminder of the seriousness of a covenant. And so Abraham and God are going to go through this covenant together. And what happens? Abraham falls asleep. And God is the only one to go through. Which means that not only will God face punishment if he doesn't hold up his end of the covenant with humanity, but God will take on the punishment even if Abraham and humanity don't hold up their end of the covenant. And you trace the storyline on and on of God is saying, I will deliver my people. You fast forward even to 2 Samuel, and you've got this incredible story in chapter 7 where God is making a covenant with King David. And he's saying, even though Saul has already failed, even though you, David, have already failed, I will make a covenant with you. And in verse 16, he says, David, son of Jesse... He said, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. God's saying, I'm going to be with you and faithful for my people. And then you go to passages like Isaiah 11. I know the people that the angel was talking to in all the universe. They're thinking about Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 3. Then a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding. A spirit of counsel and strength. A spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight, this one, this person that will come up out of the line of Jesse, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, and he will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will execute justice with the poor justly. And then, we, many of us, if we've been in the Christian faith for long, we know this passage, Isaiah 53. All the folks in the universe, they're thinking about Isaiah 53. God, you promised us here. Isaiah 53, this incredible passage about the great Messiah that would come. God's people have sinned. They can't cross the chasm between them and God in their sin. They need someone to atone for their sin. And God is going to send a Messiah. They know about this Messiah. And what does God say about this, this person? What is God's promise? Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. We've heard that before. Isaiah 11. Other passages. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces because he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or sin of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression... 
and judgment he was taken away. And for as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the, uh, the transgressions of my people? And he made, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The people in all the universe know about these prophecies. They know about God's promises. And they are looking at this transcendent God, and they are saying, is it really true that his will will not be done? And if we were to continue along in the biblical storyline, it gets even more hopeless. After Malachi and the last prophets, and after the exiles, you have this period of about 400 years after the last prophet, where God's people are not ruling over themselves. There are no kings, because again, they're exiled, There's, they're taken over by other peoples. There are no more prophets, so God feels silent. There's no good priest. Many of the priests have been corrupted and pharisaical. And it feels like, God, where the heck are you? Where are you? I have heard about all of these prophecies. But then what happens? Out of hopelessness, out of hopelessness, they sit here And they are waiting, God, are your purposes ever going to come to pass? Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look into it. And so I wept, and I wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look into it. Satan has the victory. Nothing we can do. And then we turn one more verse. John is weeping. He is saying, it is all over. And then all of a sudden, the elder's like, no, 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 no. Look, right there, right there. And he says, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw one slaughtered like a lamb, standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Or if you want an easier way to understand that, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sin, catch this, 
He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Imagine the moment. Total silence. Total hopelessness. And not a human, not a beast from the earth. Everybody's looking around saying, is anybody worthy? Where, where, where is it? And then suddenly out of the midst of the throne, recognizing divinity, Jesus steps out, lion, lamb, and says, I can open the scroll. How many of you, think back to that, that hopeless situation in your life. Where you, if you're honest, in your heart of hearts, you feel like God has given up on you. He's not going to be with you. He's abandoned the promises he's made to you. That's exactly how all these people felt. And God never abandons his promises. He is true. God is always faithful. Even if his faithfulness takes longer than we expect, God is always faithful. And not just faithful, he will give us more than he could ever possibly promise us that we could comprehend. And out of the midst of the throne, Jesus comes in amazing fashion to fulfill all of the promises of God. God's purposes will come to pass. God will win in the end through Jesus. And one of the most amazing parts of this is it's not just like the human Jesus like we think of. John actually uses this imagery of a lion and a lamb. This slaughtered lamb and this lion. And the point is not that you could draw a picture and it's half lion, half lamb. That's not the whole point of this. this is, remember, Revelation has so much imagery going on. It's describing something deeper than his aesthetics here. You're not supposed to picture a literal lion-lamb. You're picturing the qualities of those things. Someone who is both lion-like and lamb-like. Again, Revelation 5.5. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered. He's able to open the scroll on his seven seals. But he's also the slaughtered lamb. Think about, you would never expect a lion and a lamb to exist in the same being because of how different they are, and yet this is what's happening in Jesus. Jonathan Edwards, this incredible theologian, has probably my favorite sermon that's ever been written or preached called The Excellency of Christ on this passage. And what he says, in his kind of old language, he says, there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus. What does he mean? He's saying that there are things that should not go together. They should be contradictions. And in Jesus, they are one and beautifully one. And he gives a ton of examples. But let me just give you a few to understand this. Remember, Jesus, truly God and truly man. He has both the mercy of God and the justice of God. At the cross, we see God's infinite mercy to humanity. And we see his infinite justice and righteousness being on display. We see the infinite God of the universe stepping into finite human form. We see that Jesus was obedient to the Father, while Jesus was also one who had supreme dominion over all kings, because he is the second person of the Trinity. We see that Jesus was self-sufficient as God, and yet in his human nature, he perfectly relied upon God in his life. We see that in Jesus, the God who will defeat pain, experienced pain. In Jesus, the God who will defeat death experienced death. And that in Jesus, the transcendent God that we cannot approach in our sin, that is far too great for us to ever fathom, has taken on human form, and we can have a relationship with him forever, face to face. 
No other religion is like this. None. Every other religion that has a God like that, take Islam, for example. At the end of the day, Allah is there on his white ivory tower. He is doing nothing at the end of the day to help his people. And if he just wants to forgive sins on a whim, it makes him unholy because there's no punishment for sin. Yet we have a God that says, I see your pain, and I'm not just going to sit up here in my white ivory tower. I'm going to step into your pain and suffering, and I'm going to do something about it. What's more, I'm going to take on human form so that when you pray to me, I actually know what you have experienced. I can relate to you, and you can go boldly before me because you know that I am not just talking in theory. I've experienced it alongside of you. There is no other God you could pray to when you have heartbreak and pain and suffering and you have been despised and neglected by those around you. Our God understands. And in Jesus, we have the perfect mediator between God and man because he is both God and man. And so forever, we know God wants a relationship with us because forever, Jesus, truly God and truly man, we will get to look upon him face to face. There is only hope in the universe if Jesus is the one on the throne. And so it doesn't matter how hopeless you might feel, how silent God might seem, he will fulfill his purposes. He will make all things right. It doesn't matter how awful they are. If God could take the worst thing, the most evil thing that has ever happened in the history of the universe, the killing of the innocent Son of God, and he could turn it for the greatest good the world has ever seen, the salvation of the world, he can redeem anything you are experiencing in this life. Anything. No matter what you're experiencing, no matter how unique the sorrow or the hopelessness you feel, Jesus is more than enough. And it doesn't mean that God is going to answer your prayers in the way you expect. But this passage reminds us that Jesus fulfills all of God's purposes so that God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. That there is infinite and ultimate hope in Jesus. And so if you're stepping in to this Christmas season, and maybe it's your first season without a loved one, or family relations are really difficult and the holidays are just a reminder for you of the brokenness of your family. Maybe you got laid off from a job. Maybe you had a relationship that just ended. Maybe you're struggling with feelings of inadequacy and family just remind you of it. Or whatever example it might be where you just feel hopeless and that God has abandoned you. Christmas and this passage is the perfect time to remember that the infinite God of the universe, that transcendent God of Revelation 4, took on a human nature, stepped into your pain and mine, and didn't just empathize with us, he made a way so that pain and sorrow and tears and death would go away forever. Such that there would be so much healing that would happen, it's almost as if none of it happened in the first place. Because what we will get in glory with God through Jesus is so much better than we could ever imagine. All sad things will come untrue. And what's more, that as God redeems all of the pain and sorrow in this world, it will make us love him all the more because we will realize he's even greater than we could have possibly imagined. Christmas is nothing but a reminder of that. That little baby in the manger is also the infinite God of the universe that we could not approach in our own sin if it were just up to us. That little child that 
still relied on his mother and his father is also the one who needs no one and nothing because he is the independent Ase God of the universe. That little helpless baby is the one that will defeat sin forever and death forever. And as we go through this Christmas season, we can read back through Revelation chapter 5 and remember that in Jesus there is always hope because in him God's promises always come to pass. And so I want to close tonight with one of my favorite quotes about the majesty of Jesus, about his greatness and, and his condescension, his transcendence and his intimacy and all of that. And it comes from uh, a letter that was received by one of my favorite pastors, a guy named Gardner C. Taylor, one of the best black Baptist pastors of the 20th century, just an incredible preacher. YouTube his name and, and listen to his sermons. They are amazing. And as Gardner C. Taylor traveled to Australia one time, with the Baptist Mission Program, this woman wrote him a letter that he received. And uh, this is Gardner C. Taylor's recounting of her words about the greatness of Jesus and the intimacy and condescension of Jesus. And let's close with this. He was born contrary to the laws of birth, and he died triumphant over the laws of death. He was born in poverty, but wise men brought their riches and laid them at his feet. He was cradled in another's crib, sailed in another's boat, rode on another's animal, supped in another's upper room, was laid in another's tomb. But to him belong the unsearchable riches of glory. The earth is his and the fullness thereof. The cattle on 10,000 hills are all his. He never wrote but once, and in that in the disappearing sand of the temple, but all of the libraries in the world cannot contain the books that have been written about him. We know of only one instance only in which he sang a hymn, but the most creative geniuses of melody have brought their purest gifts and laid them at his feet. As a baby, he frightened a king. As a child, he perplexed the elders and doctors. As a man, he made the sea be still and watched his waves laid down upon the bosom of his gentle command. Sin could not overcome him. Satan could not seduce him. Sinners could not withstand him. Death could not destroy him. And the grave could not hold him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in him, all of your promises are yes and amen. God, you are faithful and you have shown us your faithfulness in sending your son in human form, laid in a manger, lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserve to die to pay the price for our sin, and then rose again from the dead in all the glory that we could possibly imagine. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. God, in him, in that little baby in the manger, we are reminded, God, that there is no such thing as hopelessness for a Christian. It is literally impossible because you took the worst thing and turned it into the best thing, which means you can take all things and redeem them for your glory and our good. And so, God, wherever my friends are at, whatever hopelessness they may feel, I pray that you would meet them in that. You would speak to them in the words of Revelation chapter 5 and remind them, God, that you are enough. You are with them. You are before them, behind them, alongside them. You fight their battles for them. And in Jesus, you made it so they can be with you forever. 
God, if there's anyone here tonight that does not know Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord, God, would you do a work in their hearts so that they would come to know the glory of our King? So God, we pray that this Christmas season will we remember your faithfulness and your Son, Jesus. We pray all of this in his mighty name. Amen.